You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Casting director Jay Bender found his first big Broadway break with Jerome Robbins Broadway. So is it any wonder that he's consistently worked on most of the dance-heavy musicals of the last 20 years? But in addition to casting revivals of A Chorus Line and 42nd Street and working with Twyla Tharp on Moving Out, Bender also assembled some remarkable casts and dramas, including two leads whom Edward Albee praised as the finest George and Martha since the original production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I'm your host, Mark Pikert, and you're listening to Jay Bender, A Life in Casting, The Broadway Years. Well, Jay, what I find really remarkable about your career is you have these two long-running partnerships. You have Neil Simon, and at the same time, you have City Sitters Encores. And as if that were not enough, you also cast some of the most memorable musicals of the last, honestly, of, of the last 30 years. Well, if you stay around long enough, you're bound to get lucky sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that people know. Uh, you, your first big musical was a lot of people's first big musical, Jerome Robbins Broadway. Exactly. And it happened because, again, of Manny Eisenberg, uh, Shirley Rich, who was the doyenne of casting, started it for Jerry. And she cast Fiddler on the Roof and other things for Jerry. And fortunately, Shirley did a year of finding members of the original casts of the shows when they were originally produced and directed and choreographed by Jerry. So she spent a year doing that, thank God, because that would have been a Herculean task of which she did. And then the project was gigantic. I mean, it encompassed so many shows. And I felt very badly that Jerry realized that Shirley perhaps could not complete it. And I felt terrible because she was an idol. But Manny called and said, go down to Jerry Robbins' house or go up on 81st. Uh, and meet Jerry Robin. The thing that got me the job, again, was a knowledge of musical theater and a complete knowledge of his major work. And that was that's a show that a lot of people got Tony nominations on, and a lot of people who became big, big names in the theater. Jason Alexander won a Tony, Faith Prince was there. Uh, Debbie Shapiro Gravit or Debbie Gravit or Debbie Shapiro or whatever her billing was at the time. And Scott Wise also won the Tony. Yes. How were you able to assemble this wonderful cast? The casting process was fascinating. Uh, it was twofold. A, the principals and B, the dancers. As far as the principals were concerned, those that happened very quickly other than what was called the setter, which was the narrator. Uh, but what was fascinating was that each person that came in had seven or sometimes up to nine songs. I mean, I remember Terry Klausner auditioning with about eight or nine songs that from the show or that he was thinking of using, and everyone had to come in with a prepared performance. 
So what we did was each person that came in for a principal role worked with Cynthion Rubia, who is the goddess of all, uh, and Scott Frankel, who, of course, became a very famous composer. And Scott was Paul Gemignani's assistant. So the three of us would actually completely coach each person before they came in so they could give a complete, continuous performance and were off book and were completely prepared. And so really, over one day, believe it or not, other than Jason, Debbie came in and was fantastic. Uh, Faith came in. And the only question that Jerry asked Paul Gimignani was, does she have a head voice? And Gimignani said, yes. And so those two roles were cast very easily. What was very difficult was casting Jason's role. And we saw endless amounts of people. Both Jason and Nathan Lane were on the road in two companies of Broadway bound. And I couldn't get them in because I knew that one of the two would get the part because they had to play Tevya in Fiddler, uh, Harrison Foy in High Button Shoes. They had to play Pseudolus in Forum. We were going for a month or two and Jerry was getting very frustrated and I knew that I was very close to being fired. On an afternoon at 890, on the fourth floor, 4-2, there was um, an office with a tiny little window in it. And when Jason came in, it was in the late afternoon, and there were windows, uh, you know, throughout the entire wall. And Jerry sat opposite the windows all by himself because all of us, we're in that little office shaking uh, with the car closed, <laughs> peering out of the window. And Jason stood there and Frankel started, Scott started playing the theme from Fiddler on the Roof. And Jason said, a Fiddler on the Roof sounds crazy. No. And as if by magic, the sun was setting and a beam of light backlit Jason. And Jerry smiled, and we knew that that was our setter. Jason wrote all the narration. That's all his writing. You know, he and Jerry talked, and Jerry wanted to make sure that the numbers were set up, number one, but number two, he was very aware that it was it had to be a celebration of the shows not him even though it was called jerome robbins broadway they it had to be a celebration of the shows and the other person that was incredibly helpful uh was grover dale who was the uh co-director and grover was wonderful uh and cynthia as i said was invaluable jerry mitchell who was also uh, one of Jerry's assistants, was invaluable, one of his first important jobs, uh, as was Scott Frankel. And 
Paul Gimignani. I mean, it was a complete collaboration. And Jerry, you know, who had a reputation of being, you know, temperamental and difficult. And that was very true. But the great thing about Jerry Robbins was he had the greatest sense of humor, which you can see from the work. And if you could make Jerry laugh, it diffused his tension and his anger. And so that was a way in which you could get things on an even keel. The audition process for the dancers was endless. They had at least six different combinations to learn. And in those days, he would split it up with his assistant, Neil Keller, who also was invaluable. And so we would do, in the morning, we would do West Side. In the afternoon, you know, we would do King and I, uh, or we would do High Button Shoes on one day. Um, and this is, again, computers were just beginning. The spreadsheets were, like, gigantic. But there was, n- there was no email. And so I would get a phone call, again, from Neil going, oh, Jerry has changed his mind. He wants the King and I people in the morning, not the afternoon, and the West Side people reversed. And we're talking about at least 30 to 35 to 40 people. Uh, And so, again, Jack Bowden and I were on the phone uh, making those phone calls. But we were so lucky. I mean, you know, Bobby LaFosse was obviously a part of the project from the beginning. Um, Charlotte was going to be a part. Uh, it was just a question of deciding what roles Charlotte would play. In many ways, Jerome Robbins' Broadway was kind of the last gasp of a certain way of approaching musical theater because there are very few shows I can think of now other than encores that have separate dancing choruses and singing ensembles and then the leads so did it did doing jerome robbins broadway and dipping your toe into that old school musical theater style did that set you up for success working on musicals later because what could be harder than casting with jerome robbins well the thing about it is i gained such knowledge all of us that did jerome robbins broadway came away learning more about the musical theater we learned about focus we learned about you know this what is the center of each role uh we learned about acting we learned about detail uh and jerry was the only choreographer that could actually translate silent film into reality when you look at the max senate bathing beauty ballet when you look at the Charleston number, I mean, they're silent films is what they really are. And they are absolutely, genuinely hilarious. What he created was the kind of choreography that you will never, ever see again on a Broadway stage by even the most brilliant choreographer. I mean, the person that comes the closest for me in that style is Christopher Wielden because they come from the same background. I mean, Jerry had the discipline of being a major ballet choreographer as well as a choreographer of Broadway shows. And well, I wanted to ask also, because this is such a dance-heavy show, what was it like working, going from Jerome Robbins' Broadway to working on Moving Out with Twyla Tharp? Well, that was very different. I mean, 
you know, and Jerry loved Twyla. And don't forget, Jerry was a great supporter of Twyla. Twyla, I must say, uh, asked for the impossible. The kind of dancing that was truly you held your life in your hands. And it was built around John Selya, you know, who was part of her company. And we had tried various versions of the show in workshop uh, to sort of evolve what kind of show it was going to be. And, you know, we had Elizabeth Parkinson. Uh, we had Keith Roberts, uh, who was amazing. Uh, we had Scott Wise, you know, who eventually then married Elizabeth. We had an incredible company, but it was also a company that were not kids. They were in their 30s because it was a story about Vietnam. Uh, and it was a story that spread a lot of ages leading to Vietnam. And so it couldn't be dancers in their early 20s. So they had you had to build Olympic stamina. And the young man, and I did not cast him, um, who I had to find the understudy, who did the village of vocals was just amazing because you thought you were hearing Billy Joel, you know, mm. and, you know, and, but what was, what was so interesting is that we went out of town and the story was disconnected and the audience couldn't relate to the story. And the only person I think that Twyla really, really genuinely listened to again was Manny Eisenberg. And Manny Eisenberg talked to Twyla and made her and coaxed her, and she agreed to redo the opening. And so once the new opening went in uh, in Boston, then the show began to make sense. But we kept losing dancers. And also, again, just like Jerry, uh, it was cast like a ballet company. We had, you know, three people per part, especially in moving out, because you, one dancer could not physically do eight a week. And then when we went to do the tour, Twyla was not stupid. Uh, you know, we knew that unless we went with younger dancers for the tour, that we would never make it. And so that in the tour, that we did have dancers in their 20s. But I must say, to Twyla's credit, uh, at the end of every single session, she said thank you to me. You know, I really became very enamored with doing dance musicals. And when I was in college, you know, I had a notion that I had wanted to be and should have been a dancer. And so I became a dance minor. So, you know, I had a, a knowledge of what technique was. And so I just gravitated so strongly to choreographers. Well, while we're talking about dance musicals and you were drawn to dance, you ultimately did cast the pinnacle of the dance musical with the Chorus Line revival. Right, uh, which was the most fun and the most collaborative uh, of all the shows. I mean... The thing that was amazing was John Brelio, Bob Avian, Bayork, uh, 
we all uh, were equal. Each one of us was equal. Uh, and there were no, there was no ego at all. And what was difficult was uh, being taped uh, and being live for 90% of the audition process. Because, because they were filming the everybody, every little step documentary, right? Right. And, but, you know, we got used to that. But I must say, um, when Jason Tam walked in uh, from an open call uh, and did Paul's speech, all of us were devastated. And the tears, every single one of us were completely dissolved um it was one of the great moments you know i'll never forget it uh and it always got better and better and better i must say that one of the things that was so important to me was that whoever played cassie had to have earned the right on broadway to really play that part and there were three girls and i must say that i fought very hard for charlotte who earned it and deserved it and was remarkable i think that we were blessed with michael barres you know uh michael and charlotte and i go way way back uh, and michael was an anchor uh, and the audition process for that was, again, fascinating because what we did when we got to final callbacks was for Bob uh, and Michael Gorman was the dance captain. And Michael and Bayard could teach a stick to dance. Uh, <laughs> I mean that, but Michael had the patience of Job and he was he played Bobby. Uh, at one point in New York and on the tour. And so what we did, again, was each person came in individually. We worked through the monologue. We continued to fill them with background. Uh, we worked on their song so that they could come in for Bob and give a full performance. And... The other story about Coruscant that I found fascinating and I learned a great deal and was very difficult for me. Tony Asbach was the best Al in Coruscant ever. We were casting uh, a Coruscant uh, and then we were casting Gypsy and he wanted to play Tulsa very badly. And he had three months to go on his chorus line contract. And to be perfectly honest with you, Tony, God love him. And this is why he's Tony Asbach. Tony crashed that audition for Gypsy. He came to me and he said, you know, this is too important. He had done, he had been a kid in Tyne Daly's revival. So this meant the world to him. And I said, Okay, because I was very, very concerned about he had three months left to go on his contract. And so it was really so difficult. But 
God, I'm so glad that he did because there may have been wonderful Tulsas in many, many companies, but there was never a Tulsa like Tony. Uh, well, yes, I, let's talk about, now that we've brought up Tony Yazbek, let's talk about casting first the City Center Encores. What was that series called? Summer Stars? Yeah, Summer Stars. I mean, Patty with, uh, Gypsy it. with Patty Lapone. How do you how do you cast a gypsy around Patty Lapone? Well, you know, I was very lucky in that Jack Rattel, who is one of my loyal, loyal f- supporters and friends, uh, wanted me to cast Gypsy, and so he sent me down again to meet Arthur Lawrence, and because uh, Arthur was very loyal and had had a casting director who was a colleague cast most all the in fact all the revivals of gypsy uh you know after lansbury and so uh i came down there and i thought the first thing he's going to want to talk about is who's going to play louise he had no interest in exploring louises at that point what he turned to me and he said i showed him a list of about 10 actors uh, for the role of Herbie. And he said, if you had your choice to cast Herbie, who would you cast? And I pointed to Boyd Gaines. Uh-huh. And he said, why did you point to Boyd? I said, because strangely enough, Herbie is a distant cousin to Willie Loman. He is a weak, failed man. And Arthur felt very comfortable with me. Laura Benanti was always in my mind. Her audition for Louise was astonishing. Uh, We rigged every Louise up in that they could instantly go from Louise in the beginning to Gypsy. Uh, And while auditioning in costume is not always a good idea. We had to give, and I thought it was very theatrical for Arthur, and he would be excited by it, so that each girl rigged something that easily and quickly a skirt could come off and you know a gown could slip down. And But Laura didn't even need to get that far. Uh, she sat down and she sang Little Lamb and Arthur set it up for her and she walked away with that part. She didn't even finish the song. All right. And joining us is a very special guest that Jay and I have been talking about quite a bit, uh, Laura Benanti. Hi. Hi. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What is your first memory of auditioning for Jay Bender? I remember that I could very much feel that he was rooting for me. Um, I was, you know, 17 years old. I had just turned 17 years old. And I was auditioning for The Sound of Music to play Liesl. And my first audition was actually for an associate and 
she called Jay after my audition and said, you, I think you should see her. And then this is just my memory of it. I was a 17 year old kid. So, um, but I remember um, Jay like came very close to me after I sang and, and he was like extremely complimentary um, and then told me he was, he told me then that he was going to bring me back in to audition again, but not for lethal because I seemed more mature than 16 going on 17, which is totally true. I've always been like a 45 year old gay man, a little girl's body. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's really true. but, um, and then, you know, after that, not only did I have the audition for Sound of Music, of which I think there were 14 in total. Um, and it wasn't until the final, um, like callback that Jay said, you're going to read for the understudy for Maria. And I remember looking at him and thinking like, well, he's lost it. <laughs> he's, he's lost his mind. Um, and I was like, I don't think I can do it. And he was like, you can do it. And I did. And then he called me that night at home and told me that I got the part. And then from really that, you know, from my first audition on championed me in such a humongous way through, he hired me for the Hunchback of Notre Dame workshop with James Lapine and then sort of talked me through it as I was, I was so insecure. I was 17 and I was so scared and I didn't think James liked me, which he didn't. And <laughs> You know, <laughs> and I and I sort of didn't know how to act, and he just like really held my hand through it. He was hard on me when he needed to be, but always I always knew he loved me. You know, some people um, give you criticism, and it's it's meant to wound you. He was always giving me. He was always helping me, and I knew that he loved me. and And then he directed me in a in a show. I think it was called City of Dreams. Yep. Oh, you remember. Then, wow. Of course. Of course I do. Of course I remember that. Um, and then and then in Time and Again, you put me into Time and Again. You he put me into Jay put me into so many workshops and readings to make sure that um I would be seen by everyone in our industry. I'll never forget this actually. I can't remember what the audition was for. But I was, I was doing, I think I was doing The Sound of Music. I was still the understudy and he brought me into audition for something and then I can't remember what it was. And I had put my hair back. My hair at the time was like very long and curly and I put it back and my audition didn't go very well. And I could feel that Jay could feel it and that he was like still rooting for me and worried for me. And then he was like, can you take your hair down? And I said, sure. But I had like a hundred bobby pins in my hair. <laughs> it was like 25 minutes after my horrible audition of me just like slowly taking my hair down. And finally the director was like, okay, yeah, I think that's okay. Thank you. And I left. I remember what, I remember that. What was it? It was Music Man. <gasps> Music Man. Yes. Yeah. And I remember what you wore. You wore this gorgeous, it was long. You wore this gorgeous white dress and it was a long dress and uh you know with your hair up you looked you know incredibly mature uh right. 
you know, but the thing, everything, I cannot believe that you have such an ex- the exact memory. The one thing to add, Laura had just finished uh, starring in the Mawa High School production of Hello, Dolly. Kinalon, yes, Kinalon High School. Yeah, exactly. Kinalon, right, right. Yeah. And uh, I've always said Mawa because it sounds funnier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so during the subsequent auditions for Sound of Music, uh, which was, you know, a, an endless process, I turned to Susan Shulman, who was the director, and uh, the part had already been cast, and we were looking, you know, she said, you know, now we need to begin to look for an understudy. And I said very casually, because I didn't want to push it. Um, I said, you know, why don't you uh, have Laura read for it? And uh, the rest, you know, is history. And the, the greatest outcome of Sound of Music was that when Rebecca left, there was no doubt in anyone's mind it was not even discussed it was a fait accompli amongst all the producers and the director that laura would instantly take over laura what does it do for a career when you have a casting director so firmly in your corner from the very beginning i would not have the career that i have today were it not for jay bender 100 percent. it's the truth i thank God for you every single day and for what you did for me. It's true. You know, to have someone with the status of Jay as a 17 year old kid to give you the stamp of approval is life changing. It was, it changed my life forever. Well, falling in love, you know, um, falling in love for me is, is easy when, you see someone whose talent also matches their personality as a human being. And that's what makes, I think, part of, part of the reason why someone becomes successful is because the audience can feel the warmth and you never, ever hide your humanity and your love uh, and your incredible sense of humor. Uh, I mean, one of the things, one of the most uh, frightening experiences, at least for me, and I know for Laura, was years later when we were doing Gypsy. And Gypsy uh, was scared the daylights out of me. Working with Arthur uh, was a very frightening but very profitable experience because Arthur trusted me. And as Laura can tell you and will tell you, once you have Arthur's trust and once you give him your trust, he's incredibly easy to work with. Laura, Jay was talking about, he hasn't spoken much about specific auditions, but your audition for Gypsy was one that he specifically brought up. So I'm curious, was it as memorable for you as it was for him? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I know that Jay fought for me to get in there. I know that Arthur didn't even want to see me. He thought I was too old and he'd yep. heard and he'd heard bad things about me. Um, so I know that Jay had to sort of stake his reputation 
Um, and I love Jay, you know, beyond him being my mentor, he is like a father figure to me. So I, it was double pressure where I was like, I cannot put, if I'm bad, it reflects poorly on Jay, who I know was like, I stake my life on this, this girl, like, trust me. And I could feel Arthur's um, disdain for me when I walked in. He did not want me to be there. And, you know, I did Little Lamb first and he was like, fine. And then I did the transition into Gypsy Rose Lee and I went up. I was nervous and I forgot what I was saying. And then he, and then, and then he, at that point he sort of softened. And he was like, I don't worry about this part for you. Like the, this part of the role, meaning like the, the, the gypsy part. And he was like, do it again, do a little lamb again. And don't worry about being young. He was like, this is the, this, just think this is the hardest, worst day you've ever had. And I was like, yes, I can understand what that feels like. That's what this feels like. Um, and he was like, and you don't even know how old you are and no one loves you. And I looked at Jay and he just sort of looked at me in my eyes and he, I could feel him pouring his love into me. And it made me cry. And I started again. And as I was leaving the room, I could hear Arthur saying, see, when she does it like that, she's brilliant. And then the door shut and I thought, well, who knows? And the second time you did Little Lamb and you broke down into tears, you never, Arthur didn't make you finish the song because, yeah. because, you know, that moment wherever, you know, those tears came from, and they came from a lot of places, obviously, but it proved to him that you were the person. And in his book on directing, of which he, you know, most of it's about Gypsy. I mean, he states, you know, that you were and you were the very best L Louise and Gypsy to ever play the role. What it took to create the end of that play when you leave Rose, still knowing that even though she's admitted it as much as she can, that she's never going to change. And when Arthur and you created the exit with you laughing, I don't think there are very few actresses in the world, Laura, that could have pulled that moment off. And uh, Marty Papadinas uh, also, you know, it was a great surprise when you turned and the dress was backless, you know, yeah. which, which, which certainly just also visually proved, you know, that your strength, you know, that Louise, you know, was going to go on. Uh, with her mother, without her mother. And so that was one of the great moments of acting uh, I've ever seen on stage. Thank you. You know? you know, that was really, that felt like a comeback to me because, you know, I came in and thanks to Jay, I had Sound of Music and I know that you recommended me for Into the Woods because you and Jim are close. I know that. Um, you know, and then I broke my neck. And into the woods. And that was such a fraught thing. And, and it wasn't until I came back in Gypsy that I felt like myself again. I felt like the same brave girl I was when I was 17. 
But at that point I was 28, you know? Um, so, and, and at that point I wasn't on the top of people's list to see for things. So the fact that Jay brought me in for Gypsy was a, again, a huge change for my life. It brought me like back into a world that I felt admonished from. And then what happened was as soon, and we were just going to city center for three weeks. And um, what happened was, is that of course, Laura was offered the role and then uh, a pilot uh, cropped up. Arthur said to me, you know, I don't feel, and he said it jokingly, lovingly, not caustically. Uh, he said, I don't feel sorry uh, for Laura as much as I feel sorry for you, Jay, uh, because you have to replace Laura Benanti. And, oh. and, and it was, you know, this nightmare. But, you know, I don't know, I forget who the producers of the pilot were, but fortunately they loved the theater. Greg Berlanti. Right, right. They loved the theater and they made it work and they moved the dates of the pilot. You know, you know what they did is they let me out of my contract. Wow. I had shot a pilot and then it got picked up to go to series. So that was the issue. It's called Eli Stone. And I went to Greg and I said, you're going to think I'm crazy for, you know, choosing theater money over TV money, but I have to do this part. And he sort of looked at me and he said, what part is it? And I said, gypsy. And he said, oh, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank thank God, because, you know, having worked at Warner Brothers, you know, uh, and Lorimar for, you know, six years, you know, uh, television producers, you know, um, are what they are and they're damn good at what they do, but they're very few that really understand the theater. I mean, exactly. you know, they would we'll always appreciate say, it. Right. They would always say to me, don't they have uh, study unders, meaning understudies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't make that stuff up. You know? Right. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then just, then to just see your growth. Listen, you know, uh, all during those years, you know, when, when you, you know, broke your neck, which is probably one of the scariest things, you know, that could happen to anyone. Uh, I kept saying, excuse me, she's broken her neck. (laughs) Yeah. Don't you understand? You know, and, and, uh, cause never in your life would you, uh, not miss a performance i mean you know they'd have to wheel you in you know before you would miss a performance you know and 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 that dedication uh is born in you and all this all this is part of you and all this are part of the elements that have created the actress that you are because you know uh, the very highs and the very lows and the art of survival. And I cannot tell you how much I love you and I thank you for giving me everything. And and thank you for joining us today, Laura. Oh my gosh, of course, Jay. I, I genuinely hope 
that you can hear how grateful I am to you for oh, my life. Honey, you're I really me am. <laughs> I really me mean cry. it for the opportunities you gave me, for the love that you have always poured into me, for how you championed me when I was top dog and when I was underdog. You know, like you, your love has always been unconditional. And you're right, I will be there for you forever. (laughs) And just remember, keep your hair down. (laughs) I I will. Well, it's interesting. You you were saying that Arthur Lawrence directed Gypsy Like a Play because we've talked a lot about musicals and we've talked a lot about comedies, but you also directed uh, some fairly heavy-duty dramas on Broadway. And I'm thinking specifically of the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf revival and Journey's End. Well, Journey's End uh, was the most fun I've ever had um, casting a play. We Journey's End, and just to, just to be clear, Journey's End, the play about soldiers in World War One, Right, which had been okay. uh, a gigantic hit for David Grinley, the director in the West End, and completely unknown in America. And Hugh Dancy and Stark Sands and Boyd Gaines and Jefferson Mays and the entire company uh, were a family. They went out, and I joined them every single night. Uh, We went out drinking uh, in an Irish bar. Casting it was a joy. I had seen uh, Hugh Dancy in a film uh, and said, you know, we've been through endless amounts of people, you know, getting their interest. And because they didn't really know what the play was, uh, I couldn't get them interested. We offered it to Hugh Dancy. I had seen Stark Sands uh, in a war movie and remembered Stark. Stark came in and auditioned and auditioned twice uh, and got it. And then David Grinley did not know Boyd uh, and he didn't know Jefferson. And they had reached a certain prominence by 2007 and Boyd came in and auditioned and Jefferson came in and auditioned and we completed the cast and I think that the that revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was a perfect production in a very different way because those Nick and Honey uh, were not names of the time, but they sure are now. Yeah, I mean, you know, what was interesting is we did several readings uh, with various combinations of stars. Uh, we didn't actually audition. I was a big, big fan of Kathleen Turner's and a big fan of Bill's. And so we did a reading at Anthony Page's apartment in New York with Bill and Kathleen and David. After the first act, Edward pulled me out of the apartment. We went down in the elevator and he turned to me and he said, this is it. This is as good as the original production. But as if a very serious World War I drama that originally started Laurence Olivier, uh, and a sparkling revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that completely revamped Kathleen Turner's entire career and really revealed and, her as a formidable stage actor. And, you know, solidified Bill Irwin as a genuine dramatic actor. 
I think for a lot of people, that's the definitive revival. As for a lot of people, the revival of Iceman Cometh that you worked on is the definitive production of that play. Well, you know, to make, you know, again, casting that with Howard Davies, who was truly a great director. I mean, Kevin had done it at the Old Vic. They had done it together. And we had Michael Emerson at the beginning of his career, Paul Giamatti, Robert John Leonard. We did not audition. Uh, Howard trusted us. He had done a uh, long day's journey uh, again with Kevin uh, and Manny producer. So we offered Robert Sean Leonard, but you know, my, f- the most difficult role to cast, believe it or not, was the Italian bartender. And I had seen Tony Danza uh, replace View from the bridge at the roundabout. And I said, Tony Danza can act, you know, uh, this, and he was, you know, wonderful. And also two English actors, Jimmy Hazeldine, who is now not with us, and Tim Pickett-Smith came over from London, and I will never forget them, and I will never forget Jimmy Hazeldine. He was one of the great, great actors. And uh, again, Howard Davies, I just want to say, was the smartest person that ever auditioned actors he genuinely audition is usually a noun you come in you read you know you don't often get adjustments and then you leave uh some directors do give adjustments but howard gave each person they sat down at a table because he said jay i know you're bringing me people that can walk and talk at the same time and they came in they chatted they read one scene he gave notes uh they read the scene again and then if he was interested they read the second scene howard taught me a tremendous amount he was a great great director and a great friend when you can be creative and when you have uh, a director and a producer that supports you um, and a writer if it's a new play or a play where the writer is mercifully still with us that's the great joy of casting and that's been the great joy of an honor of working on all these incredible Broadway plays and musicals. This is Jay Bender, A Life in Casting, a podcast from RWS Entertainment Group and Bender Casting in association with the Broadway Podcast Network. Starring Jay Bender, hosted by Mark Pikert. Produced and directed by Mark Brandon and Kyle Coker. With executive producer Ryan Stana, Consulting producers Joe Christopher and Abby Buell. Artwork by Justin Squiggs Robertson. Marketing concept by Kevin Lau. Marketing content by Amy Cannon. Edited by Derek Gunther. And a special thanks to guest star Laura Benanti. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E 
www.ministrymarkwhitehouse.org because only together we rise.